Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today, this is an amazing thing. Almost a year ago to this date, I had Margaret O'Connor on the show, and she was talking about her first book, and Margaret has returned to talk to us about her latest book. So I'm going to hand the floor over to Margaret real quick. Margaret, can you tell everybody how you've been uh, through all this and what sparked the second book? Oh, certainly, J.R. Um, thank God I've been very healthy, no major concerns that wise. But um, what really sparked the second book is, believe it or not, this actually was my first book that I was writing and something amazing happened. Um, I started getting thoughts in my mind, woman priest, woman's ordination. And okay, well, literally they kept coming and coming and, and so much so that I thought this is a major distraction. So I completely stopped writing the book that we'll be talking about today and went on with my other book, Scandal in the Shadows. So that was that was pretty unique. I've never had anything like that before happen. Okay, so kind of like, yeah, that's that's weird. And not weird, but it's 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 strange. Like, you know, you started your first book and that was that was your strong feeling. And then your second book becomes your first book. And now yes. your first book is your second book. <laughs> Conf we'll confuse the listeners. Yeah, confuse them a little bit. Now, the title of this book, Journey of a Celiac Soul. Um, could you explain this title to the audience? Because uh, some of our audience is well-informed and some of them are not informed to the nature of that title. Oh, sure. The word celiac, that's basically underlies this whole book. Um, it's an autoimmune disease. And basically what that means is that you are no longer to eat any foods that contain wheat, rye, barley, or oats. If those oats aren't grown on a field separate from your other like wheat and grains. And what happens is, um, think of when you eat any type of your regular everyday foods, breakfast foods, lunch, dinner, obviously they contain wheat. For some reason for people with celiac disease, when that hits your intestinal area, the body is like on alert and they're gonna fight. They see that wheat, that grain is an invader and they end up attacking your own intestinal wall. So uh, a Dr. Tam O'Brien, he really gave you an excellent vis uh, visualization on this. Think of the inside of your uh, track uh, as having being lined with uh, shag carpeting. So normally if you eat something with uh, that has B12 in it, that shag in one side will take out the B12 vitamins. You eat iron, a food with iron in it, the another shag will take the uh, iron and no matter whether it's proteins or good fats, your body, your intestine, it looks almost like uh, mountains and valleys and there's these little wavy projections called villi and they're there to take in the value the vitamins the minerals the proteins from your food but with the damage done by the wheat coming in and your own body attacking it they completely it's almost like sandpaper they completely remove those projections so you can eat and eat 
food and yet you are taking in no value. So basically what's happening is you have a medical disease that's causing starvation in your body. And that is no fun way to lose weight. And that's why people, uh, and, and I can understand why they hear diet. So what do you think of right away? You think of weight loss. Well, yes, ours is a diet, but it's not to lose weight. It's to keep our weight on. Because if we ingest any wheat and foods, we lose great amounts of uh, weight. And again, nothing is being absorbed. So you're constantly tired. Oh, it's just an awful fatigue. You're losing great amounts of weight. Um, you either have a, a awful constipation or diarrhea. Uh, anemia was my companion, unfortunately. It was always there. And um, it's just a lousy feeling. Uh, you, you're, you're, you have like stomach, intestinal pain. I won't get into the nitty gritty of it, but it is, it's bad. And that's why if you're living with a disease like this, going through your life every day with these symptoms, and then here you hear the world is looking at this as like a fad diet, there's an awful um, disconnect there. Oh, wow. Well, let me ask you this. So um, how did this become like a fad diet? Like who determined oh, that having a disease? Well, uh, actually, yeah, actually, uh, the big movie stars, uh, some tennis players, they got on this diet. And they were basically saying how, how good they felt. Now, maybe they had some type of uh, sensitivity themselves to wheat. Uh, but anyway, so when it's like anything, you know, you're seeing all these big stars and they're raving about this diet. But the funny part is, well, it's not funny if we have to, you know, eat this food that we that it's gluten free, is that it has more sugar in it. It has more fats in it. It doesn't have the pro uh, all the protein that your normal foods have. But so many people basically got on this sort of a bandwagon. And you know how it was just such a big craze. You'd look anywhere and all of a sudden you'd see gluten-free foods, this gluten-free. And for those of us with celiac disease, in a sense, it was an awful godsend because finally you had the major big companies, whether it was like um, General Mills or a post, any of the big cereal companies, they started, they could see the money. So they immediately got on this bandwagon. But, uh, and, and for those of us with this disease, thank God now you can have bread that doesn't fall apart, literally. You can have food that, you know, it, the quality of the food tastes so much better. Okay, now how does this tie into the Catholic religion? Oh, yes. Uh, we've just been talking about celiac disease uh, in regards to one's own physical body, their health. Yes. Okay. Well, when you think of wheat, um, that wheat and grain had followed me into my church, literally right up on the church altar 
in the form of the communion host. Your uh, communion host has wheat in it. And I was diagnosed back in 1986. And at the time, the Catholic Church only had one communion host. And again, that was Wheaton. About 18 years later, they came out with a low gluten host. And predominantly, people with celiac disease have no problem with that. But there are other Catholics, such as myself, that have celiac disease. And when we ingest that host, we do have problems. And we're almost like the invisible uh, Catholics. And unless I had a priest that would allow me to use a gluten-free food, um, in other words, uh, if you're gonna carry like communion, the priest carries it, the Eucharistic ministers, they carry communion to the sick in this like little metal container. And I bought one of those and then I put my gluten-free food on that and actually set it on the altar. And then the priest during the consecration as he would normally um, you know, do the blessings and say the prayers over the regular communion host, my picks is up there on the altar. But canon law, that's church law. And that law explicitly says that the communion host has to have so much wheat in it. And that's the major problem because my food that I put up on the altar in that picks does not have wheat in it. And that's where the Catholic church says, unfortunately, no, we can't, con that isn't communion, but but if I can just be the devil's advocate. Okay. Okay, again, my pix is up there on the altar near um, where the regular, you know, hosts are. The priest is saying the prayers of the consecration. So my, the priest is standing in, obviously, for Jesus. But who's actually making that change in the matter to Jesus's body? That's um, Jesus, and that's what he's doing. So my communion picks is either going to, Jesus is going to say, fine, this is allowed, or he's going to say, no, this isn't allowed. So really, from that perspective, what is the problem? Okay. So, so basically the church doesn't want to conform. No type of conformity can be made under uh, the old, the laws that are written for you to actually have access to your communion. Yes. And unless I can find a priest that allows that, which I had for several years, and then a new associate priest came in and this was uh, last December or two years ago rather. And uh, he said, uh, Peg, I have to talk to you. And I said, all right. And he said, we have to go outside. And I said, what? This was, you know, in December. So we get outside and he says, Peg, I no longer can give you your communion. So Whoa. I said, well, why father? Uh, I said, who's telling you that you, you can't do this? 
and there was silence. And then he went on and no, and he says, I don't know you. And I said, Father, you've only been giving me communion now about five or six months. And I said, who is telling you that you can't give me this? And I was getting nowhere with him. And I, I was, I was really afraid. So I said, all right, Father, I'm ending this conversation now before I say something. So I went back in the church and I, I took my picks off the altar and, and left. But I did call him that following Monday and he called me back on Tuesday. And I said, Father, let's cut to the chase. I said, what is going on here? And again, he's hemming and hawing and he, he wouldn't say anything. And I said, Father, this is my spiritual life. This is my Eucharist and you're telling me that I can't receive this. I said, I demand to know now who has put you up to this. And then finally he said, well, uh, it's me. And I said, what? I said, why are you doing this? And then he went on to say that he was breaking church law, canon law, which by the way is man-made law. This is not Jesus's law. And I said, all right, let me try to understand this. You, oh, and then he also said after, you know, he was breaking the church law, he said, I, I just can't go on doing this. Uh, my conscience just, it, it, it's awful. And that's why I have to stop giving you communion. So I said, all right, let me try to understand this. You're gonna leave me out here swinging in the wind without communion. And yet, um, your conscience is going to be fine and dandy. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, you, you can receive the cup. I have personally seen this happen twice. If you don't have a separate communion cup that is away from the other communion cups, a lot of times uh, at, at right before communion, if the priest has extra wine in his chalice, he will actually pour it in some of the other communion cups there that are distributed. Well, right away, that's contamination because there's what's called commingling during the uh, mass and the priest breaks particles of the host into the chalice. So I, I, I wasn't in agreement with that. And he also wanted to give me musk. And I said, we're gonna run into the same situation as, as has happened with uh, um, the communion um, cup where either he forgets and pours it in or uh, another Eucharistic minister sees a cup that's out, which was my cup, which was out from the other cups and then puts it right at the front it would be like the first cup so uh, I went 20 years undiagnosed and I was sick every day. And I said, Father, no, those other options are not um, viable for me. So anyway, that, that's where I stand now. That I, I haven't got communion and uh, received communion in two years. And that's crazy that your own pastor, I could see if it was something higher up the chain that they decided to, to, to bring down into your church. But 
you, the pastor just decided personal preference, not it's not oh. anything. It's not even re religious. It's just personal preference. Oh well, actually, this was the the associate pastor, and then that's even more puzzling, Jr. Because then I did go to my pastor, and uh, I, I said, and he says, "Oh, I, I know what he wanted to discuss with you." And believe it or not, there's actually a canon law that says that. Uh, if there's any like um, important pronouncement that has to be made, it's the pastor that should do it. But anyway, when I, I said, I explained what he said and why. And I said, you know, I grew up back in the 1950s and a pastor, he was the person that was in charge. And associate priests would never, ever do anything like this. And I said, uh, Father Brian, what are you going to do about this? And he looks at me, well, Peg, um, I talked to him. I, I talked to him several times. And I said, so in, in other words, you're not going to do anything. And he just turned right away. He turned his back to me and walked away. So uh, it's, it's very disheartening to say the least. Yeah, I was about to, to interject it. I was about to say it's really disheartening because that's your priest and your associate priest and it doesn't matter the religion we can take that back over to mine which is baptist the associate associate uh pastor has some say so but everything like you said and it doesn't matter what it is inside christianity they the, the your main pastor handles everything everything he's the final law on what goes on in that church Definitely. besides your boards and different things that uh work inside it work with him inside the church functions so my question to you is, is how did it make you feel when you left the church? Initially, you leave the church, you hop in your car, you go home, and all this trust that you built with this pastor over all this time, the associate pastor, not so worried about his feelings, because obviously there's a discord there, but how did it make you feel when this pastor turned his back on you, per se? Uh, it was just sickening. And, I, and then I, in my mind, I'm trying to reason uh, and especially coming from a priest of all people, that's yes. just like a, a double-edged sword. Um, trying to understand where he's coming from. Um, I, I can't even put it in the right words, but it, um, it, in my last book, we had gone into about the church had lied, the betrayal of trust. That's the term I guess I'm using. Um, you know, where there were women priests and they say, no, there aren't. Well, this was just an awful betrayal of trust that, I mean, here you're supposed to, you're, you're a good Catholic or I don't care what the religion is. You're a good Lutheran, a Methodist. Um, you go to church and, you know, obviously that's the highlight of the mass. And it's the highlight of your own uh, spiritual being, literally, is, uh, you know, you, you're just bonded with the Eucharist. And to have something like this happen, I, I was, I guess, shell-shocked. I mean, I, I, first of all, I just couldn't believe that something like this would ever happen. And then when it did happen, um, I got home and did this really just happen? Um, 
And, and I mean, basically to me, it feels like when you're being devout, you shouldn't be destroyed for being devout and you're devout in your faith and someone just tries to break it with their own personal intuition. That's always been my major issue, even, you know, with, uh, being a Baptist Christian out of Virginia, um, it always seemed like the man-made, or I just say this, the human intuition that is brought into religion always finds itself on your front porch doing something disastrous to your home. And it's crazy that, you know, you've gone to this church all this time and you build up rapport. These are people you know in your community. Uh, Your priest is considered not necessarily your middleman, but it's a communicator to God in your religion, correct? Oh, definitely. So how can you put faith back in this man that just turned away, just treated you like you were invisible? So um, in that instance, you had to make a choice, uh, either risk your health um, or or choose your religion. So um, what did you decide to do? Obviously, you're alive, so we know you chose something. So well, there, well, there's one more. Uh, <laughs> this is, if you think what I've just told you is unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> I went to the bishop. Whoa. And then this was even more sickening. Uh, I related my experience, you know, what had happened with the, the associate pastor. And I guess I shouldn't have said that I felt that he no longer uh, should be a priest. I don't think that went went very well, but I mean, I can't help it. This is so personal, you know. So uh, he looked at me and he said, well, Peg, you better pray and pray and pray that God hears your prayers. So in other words, he was being very dismissive of me. He had no uh, intention of trying to to solve this problem. Uh, He he had his own agenda. And that agenda certainly uh, was not to help me. Yeah, it seems like it was more to just pacify, like not even to help you, like not even to think about the situation. And um, that seems like that's a, a common theme on the controversial stuff inside of uh, being a Catholic. So um, I know with you, you are a person, you are what we call an investigator. So you do research. Um, were there any instances as you were writing this book and, and all that you found uh, more information, obviously, that uh, went along with your story? Uh, no, but it really... Um... Well, what I want to add is I forgot this book. It's not only about my own personal, you know, experiences, mm-hmm. uh, whether physically or with the church. It's for anyone that wants to themselves really examine this Eucharistic sacrament. Uh, you know, so many times we take things for granted. You know, the Eucharist is always going to be there. And today, um, it's not only my access issue. It's an access issue to any other Catholic in our church due to the awful priest shortage. And many Catholics um, now, finally in our area, it's, it's starting like out in the rural areas, it's starting to be very apparent. And it's gonna be here really quicker than anyone 
realizes. But then again, JR, that brings up a whole other issue. We know from the research that I found in my other book that there were women priests, bishops, and deacons. Who better to help, in a sense, begin to shore up this awful priest hemorrhage than bringing back this tradition of woman priest back into our church? And of all times, um, we certainly need that. And um, could, could you go into a little bit of detail of why there is a current priest uh, shortage in the Catholic Church? Um, beyond the obvious things, not necessarily, I don't, not necessarily talking about the scandals and stuff like that, but why is there a shortage? Well, it started, believe it or not, back in the 1970s, the church had done surveys and they could see back then that the numbers of, uh, you know, young men entering the seminary, the priesthood, uh, were starting to fall off. And a lot of people will say that one of the reasons is the celibacy issue, which of course, for any uh, young man going into the priesthood, that's one of the main things they have to be celibate. And of course, as our society changes, uh, that, that can be a very major issue, your own human sexuality. And it's basically um, has to be put on the back burner if you're going to be a priest. So that was one issue that they said was starting to, uh, you know, affect. And then I think just um, the other uh, rulings within the Catholic Church, uh, whether it be on uh, controversial issues. Um, maybe these priests felt a different way and uh, even within their own conscience, they were upset. So they started to, uh, to leave the priesthood. But the major issue is the, the priest sexual abuse. And of course, the hierarchy will try to gloss over this. But if you're a parent and you have young children, I know this from my cousins, they uh, did not want their, their boys to be altar boys anymore. They were afraid. I mean, what is going on? And this is awful to say because there were young boys that were molested in the, the sacristy and that's the area right off of the church or the church altar area. But that fear of, is that priest? Is, is he one of those? You know what I'm saying? But then again, the whole role model of being a priest used to be looked at as such uh, a special uh, endeavor if you were uh, Catholic. And there was a certain honor there, like for a family that, you know, their son um, was, was a priest, a bishop, or, you know, the, the few that go on to be cardinals. But... Uh, that has been devastated too. And, and you put like all these different components together and uh, this has uh, kept men from um, joining to be a priest. 
and then also the churches uh not having not including females as priests and things like they did in the past i can can almost figure that that's a big thing there now let me ask you this uh on the position of from the last book um have there been any changes that you have noticed in the catholic church uh to kind of give women more rights in the uh the the pastor positions or deacons oh uh, and... no 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 everything is uh, status quo and this is what I, I just can't understand how this hierarchy, they basically from the 70s, they could see the numbers were, had gone down of men entering the priesthood. And what did they do? Nothing until they had to do something. And what they devised, JR, it's called a communion service. Instead of having the mass or what is now known as the liturgy of the Eucharist, you have consecrated hosts from a previous liturgy that would be available at this communion service and you would have a deacon or a eucharistic minister presiding and saying some prayers and uh, then uh, doing readings and then distributing uh, the eucharist but of all things that they have to affect but that was because they did nothing and yet the writing now is on the wall. They know it is on the wall. They finally had to do something with that communion service. And another reason, again, you said, what is the awful, um, the pre-shortage? Numbers are, they're double, triple because the remaining priests that are left, they are now predominantly all in their 70s in their 80s or upwards and of course i mean when you anyone that reaches those ages somewhere within the next uh, you know a few decades you're going to be you die off and that's what's happening and there's such a great number of them that are you know dying off and who is there to replace them uh no one and obviously uh, like you said if they knew this from the 70s to now um that's that's a good long time to have started some kind of advocacy to gain more priests and to bring um females into the uh persuasion and obviously that did not happen so let's dive a little bit into this book all right we touched on the topics of the celiac disease we touched on the priest shortage um inside this book what kind of self-care did you do for yourself when you were writing this one uh what do you mean like well when when you write things um you write things to inform people but at the same time you write things for self-care like the incident that you went through with your pastor um your pastor and your associate pastor um how did you get closure in that matter or did you not get closure in that matter oh no i have no closure in that matter it's it's like uh it's like an open wound. And then when I started writing this book, I didn't dare go to another priest that is open because I just didn't want them to get in trouble because I know now that this book is out. Uh, I've, I've basically aired the dirty laundry that uh, I was getting communion and you know that would put the priest in, in trouble. 
And I am not about to put any priest in trouble. So I, I didn't even broach that topic with um, another open-minded priest. Okay. And in, in, in writing both these books, these books uh, didn't garner you any type of excommunication or anything from the church, did they? Uh, no, they didn't. And um, how, at least from the first book, how from that book did your priest and your associate uh, priest take these uh, books in? Like, how did they, how did oh, they, they accept they, them? they don't even know they exist because I've never talked to them. Oh, wow. Since that incident. Yeah. And then I've just been going to other Catholic masses, you know, not receiving communion at other churches. But just still keeping yourself in a place of worship. And I, I definitely respect that because, like you said, if someone doesn't have your better interests, then um, sometimes you do have to walk away from the people. And especially someone that's supposed to be of a higher power. power. I'm not going to say necessarily a deity or anything like that, but someone that's supposed to be the medium between you and God shuts you out that, 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 that happening in the same thing with uh, the female priests and the female uh, exclusion from the Catholic religion to a degree. And yeah, uh, it's a real double whammy. Yeah. Cause, cause it's like, you want to do right, but then you, you can't because someone won't allow you to, they actually, they're they're about like uh when you go to a family function you have that one set of uh uncles and aunts that doesn't talk about the family secrets and then you have those that do and the ones that don't are the ones that keep it silent forever and you never hear anything about it so um your your second book which is your first book journey of a celiac soul uh, where can we find this book and um what is the the major message that you would put out on a billboard if you posted a billboard about this book oh there's so many so many avenues um be grateful for your opportunity to receive the eucharist okay and i, I can i can go with that one okay. now one more thing. Yes, ma'am. Keep going. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to get back to an aspect of, of what about celiac disease, because there's so many uh, Catholics that have this disease and, and whether it's an immediate family member or even uh, friends, relatives, they, they can't see the, the seriousness of why just a little gluten isn't going to hurt you. And and Dr. Oz said one eighth of a teaspoon is all that someone like with celiac disease needs to get awfully sick. And again, just getting back to what a change, what a loss this is in your life. We, we all have that awful loss of a loved one. Um, we lose a job, we, if we're you know in a divorce, but with celiac disease, your loss is from the perspective of your everyday food. And I remember when I got the phone call, I was sitting in my kitchen uh, table and the doctor thought he knew what I had uh, and he wanted me to go and get another test done. And then he would know definitely, but it was what he said afterwards 
he said, if this is what I think it is, your whole food regimen is going to be forever changed. You are never going to be able to eat the foods, so many of the foods that you're eating right now. And you're never, his last sentence was, you will never ever again be able to eat your favorite cookies. Well, I put the phone down and yes, I was shell shocked to say the least. And I remember looking over at a kitchen cabinet and I could see like the Duncan Hines uh, brownie mix, Duncan Hines <laughs> chocolate cake mix and you know, whatever else. And all of a sudden what his words, the way they hit me, it was fear. And I remember going down in the basement, we had, oh my God, we had eight or 10 boxes of uh, the Girl Scout mint cookies. <laughs> The Thin Mints, yes, ma'am. Yes, and uh, remembering that I can eat and eat and eat because nothing's being absorbed. I I grabbed about eight or at least eight boxes and brought them upstairs and immediately devoured them because that's how this hit me, that I'll never, ever again be able to eat my regular foods. Now, someone else, it'll hit them another another way. But why is it so important that, that we accept this reality, that we really experience this grief? Because if you're in denial, uh, it's serious because uh, this uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano said, um, the gluten-free diet is like insulin for diabetics. And if, you're, if you have celiac disease and you don't go on a gluten-free diet, you die slowly, but you die. And this is a man, thank God, this doctor came from Italy. He was a pediatric uh, gastroenterologist. He saw about 15 to 20 children every week, you know, diagnosed with celiac disease. So he comes over here first to the University of Maryland. And okay, weeks went by, months went by, a year went by. And he wrote this book, Where Are All the American Celiacs? He had no one to work with. So he got a sample from the Red Cross and there he found several cases of celiac disease, but because of the confidentiality, he had no name. So, you know, he couldn't alert um, these people. But I'll tell you, I mean, Italy, if you're a child or a doubt and you're diagnosed with celiac disease from the time you have symptoms until the diagnosis, it's only two or three weeks. Run that same scenario over here in the US and you're talking 10 years. Um, I went 20 years and when the doctor got the final results back, he said, you're a very, uh, very lucky woman. He said, within six months, you would have been down six feet in, in the grave. So I'm just saying this, we as celiacs, we, we don't want sympathy, but the, the waiter, their truth on what we ask about how the food is prepared, um, the chef, the, the restaurant owner, it's the cross-contamination issue. Okay, say the... Uh, uh, the waiter says, yes, we have um, gluten-free pasta. 
All right. Now, is that your uh, dish of gluten-free pasta? Is that being cooked in a separate pan of fresh water? Or are they throwing that gluten-free pasta in the pan that just had wheat and pasta in it? What about the colander? Was that just used for a wheat and pasta order? What about the ladle to spoon out uh, the sauce? Was that just used over uh, wheat and noodles? And then what about the uh, meatballs? Were they breaded with wheat and flour? I'm just trying to say there's so many ways that contamination uh, can occur. And we're, we look forward, we go out, um, we want to try to pretend like it used to be. You would just go to a restaurant now, if it's in the breakfast, gee, maybe I have a hankering for French toast. Yes, we can make that French toast back at home with gluten-free flours. But if we're at a restaurant predominantly, um, that's completely out, your waffles, your pancakes. Uh, your um, English muffins, your bagels, uh, any of the breads there, they're all um, wheaten. And then your soups, you have to know what's in the base for that. What about the gravies, you know, the, the flour used for that? I, I mean, I can go on and on, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm just doing this so that the waiters understand the seriousness of this. If they think it's just a fad diet, oh, I had a little gluten, that's not going to hurt you. And um, I'm very lucky I didn't uh, come down with cancer, but there's been other um, Catholic celiacs uh, that went beyond 20 years and they did come down with cancer. All from, uh, all from uh, the outside world having a lack of knowledge. Because like you said, in food preparation, um, even going into that much detail, I didn't know that there was that much that went into being a celiac and making sure that you truly are cooking and eating gluten-free. Yeah, as much, as it, definitely, because it, it, it's not only that people can say, oh, well, here, there's wheat pasta, we'll cook you up, whatever. No. And then even, um, I can't, I better not use it. It's one of the major, a big like breakfast chain. I heard the most ridiculous thing that they were putting a flour into the egg mixture to make it more, the eggs look more fluffy. Well, here you think, well, what, how can I, uh, um, I would normally say, could you just in a separate pan put my egg? Because if it's on like a, a big griddle area, you don't want that because what was just on there? Did they just have, um, uh, regular pancakes, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, or whatever. So, but to hear that one where they put flour in into the eggs, that just blew my mind. Yeah, that, that's crazy. That's kind of like putting the eggs on steroids to pump them up <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Oh, along with being with this gluten-free diet, does this protect? Does this carry over into sodas and different things like that, or pop? Uh, I personally don't. Um, I don't drink pop because of the carbonation. I'll leave it at that. Um, but you have to be uh, watch out for your like certain liquors. Uh, 
um, beer and that because of the malt. Yes. So that's a whole other issue. And then even um, instant coffee can have fellers in it. Um, oh, here's a good illustration. Uh, we have a grocery store, uh, Wegmans. Yes, we have those. Or and Virginia, I, we do. Oh, great. I love it because, you know, they have everything labeled like gluten-free, lactose. And I also have a lactose problem. So um, their coffee... Um, Oh my God, the little things that you put in the, uh, the K-cups, K-cups. Oh, K-cups, okay. Okay, they're gluten-free. Now, all K-cups aren't gluten-free. Uh, we have like uh, Tim Horton's uh, coffee shop. And if you go in their store, the coffee that's served there is gluten-free, but their K-cups are not gluten-free. So that's a whole other hidden area. You know, you just can't grab a, a K-cup and assume that it's um, gluten-free. Okay. So you have to be real careful. Oh, medications too. That, that's With medications, area. whoa. Yeah. And um, this was really upsetting. It took forever to finally get that new uh, labeling that they finally included wheat in like one of the major... Uh, components. Uh, it's the restaurant industry that labels it as an allergy. Because people would say, well, how can you call uh, celiac disease? Uh, you're calling it an autoimmune disease, and they're saying it's an allergy. But anyway, that's how that's labeled. And when that law was passed, they did not include medications, and it's specifically in the starch of a medication where the gluten would be. So then you will call a drug company and um, you will ask them, is this uh, uh, gluten-free? Oh, well, ma'am, no, we can't say it's, he, he listed it. Oh yeah, it says gluten-free. And I said, so you're telling me that there's no uh, gluten at all in this? Oh, well, ma'am, we can't say it's gluten-free because we, we, we really don't know. Well, then why are you saying, listing it as gluten-free? So then again, you get people like that work at, not everyone, but you know what I mean, that uh, they see this as like a fad diet and they just sort of gloss it over. Um, but I get my medication at Wegmans and I have them contact these pharmacies because they're very good that way to be sure you know that the product that i'm medicine i'm getting is gluten-free okay so you do have a mode and, and a method to what you got going on well margaret um i want to thank you for coming on west virginia and commonplace uh it's been a great pleasure having you back on for a second time um and i hope in another year you have another book coming out um that lets people outside of the, the Catholic religion um, know more about what goes on behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't hear about on the news, like something like this and something like your first book should have been something that it should have been on 2020, 60 minutes. These things should be more highlighted, you know, oh, um, inside society. Yes, definitely. And uh, one more time, just uh, one thing that we do on the show, the shameless plug, could you please tell everybody where they can get both your books and how they can get in contact with you? 
Uh, yes, uh, my first book was Scandal in the Shadows, the original priest, Mother Mary. That's right. Uh, Jesus's mother was a woman priest. Uh, that's at Amazon. And my uh, latest book, Journey of a Celiac Soul, A Second Chance at Life, uh, that's as well at Amazon. And if you go over to www, or excuse me, <laughs> yourradicaltruth.com, yourradicaltruth.com, you will see uh, as you go across the menu, there's a contact uh, on the heading there. Okay. And once again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And um, you're an amazing person. Um, and I give everybody a testament. That's something I do nowadays, not in, in the biblical sense. But he here's the thing, uh, Margaret O'Connor. Um, it takes a lot to step away from your religion. Religion is part of our morality. Um, it's it's basically our institute of thought to a degree. And um, to have to sometimes remove yourself from it in certain instances uh, we're, we were taught as children not to speak up and, and be very loud in the church. Um, opinions, are, and it doesn't matter the religion, opinions are something that uh, don't hold very much merit in the church, uh, no matter the religion. But you yourself, uh, you stepped up, uh, you've seen some things, and obviously you had a physical uh, disease that has take, taken over um, with a celiac disease, and you decided to take a stand. You went to your priest. Uh, you're in your first your associate priest in your priest and you try to get a, a, a resolve there didn't get it there went to the bishop uh the bishop thought otherwise and then you decided to do, to do what would work for you and not cause harm to anyone else you continue to go to church various churches but you stayed strong in your faith um and that's one thing that's great there but at the same time you took care of yourself you made sure that you were staying healthy um by not taking the communion uh, anymore. So what I want to say to you is, is this, I really, really appreciate your fortitude. Uh, that is something that is a dying characteristic in all generations, um, because a lot of people don't have fortitude. They'll uh, be quick activists for things, and then they'll just let it die down and move on in life. So that's one thing I want to thank you for, and I want to thank you for presenting that to the audience uh, in this show today, because you're letting people know that it's all right not to be all right with a situation when someone of authority tries to hold you down uh, in a sense and make you conform to what's not right for your body and you didn't conform. So I want to thank you, Margaret, for that wholeheartedly. Oh, and th th just thank you uh, for having me on. And aren't we all so lucky to have Jesus in our life? Yes, I mean, we are. That, that's where the real presence is and, you know, none of this other malarkey yes ma'am all right so once again i want to thank you for being on west virginia and commonplace and i am signing off <laughs>